From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Afghanistan is in crisis since the U.S. withdrawal this summer. Millions don't have enough food. We hear from a Colorado-based group that's scrambling to provide Afghans with basic needs. Then one day, genetic testing will help doctors know what medications work best on different patients. And with some drugs, that's already happening. We'll speak with a professor who studies so-called pharmacogenomics and knows from personal experience how effective the science can be. Then one man's journey from childhood to the juvenile justice system to adulthood. We're all human. We're all the same. No matter how you were raised, you're still a human being. And if I wouldn't let that happen to me, I don't want that to happen to you. give to CPR because it's just a great thing to support, especially during the pandemic. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of Colorado Public Radio's community of support. Your donations strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. When the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan this summer and the Taliban took over, many nonprofits working there had to switch gears. That includes Morningstar Development in Colorado Springs. The group has been educating and training Afghans in areas like medicine and business. Now, much of Morningstar's work also involves providing people with food and other basic needs. Dr. Dilip Joseph has been to Afghanistan nearly a dozen times as part of this work, and Dr. Joseph, thanks for joining us. You're welcome, Andrea. You haven't been able to travel to Afghanistan for several years. We'll talk about that in a bit. But you do have Afghan nationals in the country working for your group. What do you hear from people on the ground? As you can imagine, it's been a very tough transition for many Afghans um, reliving this uh, Taliban governance Uh, now for the second time in a quarter of a century. Uh, In spite of the challenges, uh, many of the people that we're working with, um, I would say almost anticipated uh, this very difficult, dire situation, uh, given the fact that, you know, U.S. and the NATO forces have been there for nearly two decades. And they're living through this difficulty in in, uh, in in the midst of the challenges. We mentioned that many groups like yours had to change direction after the U.S. withdrawal. You are still able to do some of your previous work, but what were the specific reasons you and others had to switch gears? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's uh, very interesting being in the community development arena, um, and there's a bit of a deja vu for us having started with relief type of work uh, back in um, 2002, when the uh, first time around the Taliban government or the regime came to an end uh, with American troops uh, coming into the um, nation. And there was a huge need at that time with much of the infrastructure 
having been destroyed. Um, some of the stats are quite dire to even think about. Um, maybe less than 4% of the population at that time in the beginning of this new century um, having access to primary health care. And now, um, you know, to almost 20 years later, we are at a very similar situation where uh, Afghans having uh, been introduced to hope uh, for the first time in many, many, many decades, uh, having to then not have access to basic resources. Um, and it's very interesting that it's not the lack of resources, the resources are actually available, but they simply do not have access to work. Uh, to earn an income, to then go get the resources. So many groups like us uh, doing humanitarian work feel like we're back to square one again, uh, uh, doing re uh, relief work, having done relief and then moving on to development and very much empowerment work with training the locals uh, to take care of the, their own needs. And the financial system there is collapsing. Um, what is the effect on people there specifically? I would say not being able to work and not being able to go and actually buy food that they need for basic sustenance and having had the financial system. I think in, in some ways, Taliban government just anticipated that all the money that kept coming from the West will continue even after they they took over as um, U.S. kind of froze uh, those assets. That was a shock to the system. And within a matter of a few days, the financial system crumbled. And uh, there's very little way of getting money in. So many of the humanitarian aid organizations like Morningstar uh, is getting money in through um, channels like Western Union, MoneyGram, and also very small um, amount that's being transferred. So those are the sort of challenges that we're dealing with. Uh, and that, of course, trans, uh, translates to real difficulty uh, in terms of um, uh, buying stuff for the locals. So it's not that there isn't food uh, available. It's just that people can't buy it. And then there's the education system. There's been quite a bit of media about changes for women and girls. What's happened there? Yeah, good question. In terms of education, um, you know, some of the stories that we're hearing uh, is, is from both sides. Um, some of the families wondering, wait, what did we just do investing into our girls and get them educated if they have no way of um, using that education? So for the past 20 years, we saw women going back into uh, any facet of life, whether that is medicine, law, education itself, politics. Um, we've had uh, young women in their early 20s becoming members of parliament because they wanted to make a difference. Now, uh, their families are wondering again, what are we doing with the Taliban government saying uh, women should not be, girls should not be educated, right? So there's a, there's a revisit of what they did in spite of um, the rhetoric being, oh no, we won't be as harsh as we were before. One of the very first things they did is uh, in major universities like Kabul University, they just closed down any opportunity for uh, young women, um, you know, girls in their late teens and college age 
uh, stopping them from receiving education. So that's difficult. On the other hand, Andrea, what we're seeing is many forward-thinking individuals who've received education, men and women, uh, using uh, the internet resources that they have to educate girls sort of underground. So we see both both facets happening all, all, on the on the reality side, the the local government like the Taliban saying, no, women cannot, girls cannot get educated. But on the other hand, um, uh, people really uh, seeing the need for that and doing it underground. Let's go back to basic needs. Who are you providing food for these days, your group? Yeah, there are many people um, in the urban settings who actually uh, see this dire need, um, you know, meeting with that reality because they're not in rural areas anymore. Um, this this entire uh, urbanization growth that we saw over the last two decades uh, actually meant that many, many people moved from rural areas to these urban sites. But many of these urban cities don't have the infrastructure uh, to really cater to them. So a good example would be uh, the city of Kabul. You know, it's really made for at best a quarter of a million people. But, you know, we see over 5 million people, uh, although some of them might have gone back. uh, There's so many people who've come to these urban sites looking for job, looking for new opportunities. And they are the people uh, who actually need uh, help through the harsh winter, uh, help uh, for basic um, food uh, resources, and they are the people that we're helping, mainly helping. And um, in the past, your role has been more about education and training. You're a doctor, so you've been part of training Afghans for careers in medicine. Morningstar has been up and running for more than two decades. What has your group been able to achieve in this country, and what are you still being able to maintain? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, as I said, you know, we kind of went from the relief uh, mode to more of a development, setting up um, educational facilities, medical, primary health care clinics. And then we slowly moved uh, within the first decade to do a lot more training. That training uh, uh, is in the leadership arena. Uh, we trained a lot of uh, future politicians, uh, doctors, educators, lawyers, um, uh, things of that, uh, you know, local businessmen. And then when the Taliban collapsed, I mean, the, the uh, um, local government collapsed and the Taliban took over, uh, now we're again seeing having to go back to that relief. But one of the things that we're seeing is that many of the people that we've trained, whether the, that is in the medical arena or the leadership arena, are now standing up and saying, if you provide us with some basic needs, whether it's finances or food, we will get through this initial crisis uh, and and um, now be the leaders to uh, whether do education, uh, set up small business ventures, and figure out a way to sustain our lives by empowering others. So it's a it's a very interesting cycle that we're experiencing now, the second time around, if you will. What support have you had from the Taliban when it comes to your programs? Yeah, very good question. Um, Initially, within the first, uh, within the last week of August, as they took over, we had a few provinces or major cities where we've worked in, uh, where Taliban came and took over our offices. Uh, But within the first 
uh, towards the end of the very first week. So this is early September of 2021. Uh, last year, like five months ago, Taliban visited our Kabul office and said, please continue uh, your programs in Kabul. We need your help um, to uh, help the poor. So we're running programs like addiction recovery in the Kabul city. Mm. We're helping to run a health clinic in the Kabul University campus. Uh, we have a few health education uh, training programs that we do in rural settings, in the suburban and rural settings within the Kabul province. So we've actually restarted programs like that after taking a, a short, very short break. I understand you haven't been back to Afghanistan in several years. That's because you were taken hostage by the Taliban. It was during a visit there in 2012. What happened? And, and do you plan to go back? Yeah, it was a very unfortunate situation. After four years and 10 trips into Afghanistan, uh, two of my colleagues and I, we were taken hostage. Uh, it was five days of hostage situation. In one of those situations, you never think you're going to make make it out alive. Um, but, you know, luckily with the help of the SEAL Team 6, I was rescued. My two Afghan colleagues were rescued by the Afghan uh, National Army and the local police. Uh, all three of us were very lucky to be in a situation where we were, uh, all all of us came out unharmed. Um, but my heart, it's, it's, it's a really interesting scenario. My heart continues to be in Afghanistan. I've tried a couple of times to go back uh, and that has not worked out. Uh, but in, in many ways, I've continued the connection with Afghans, um, you know, from the distance and uh, uh, continuing my work with Morningstar has, has also allowed me to stay in touch with the many friendships that I've been able to deepen over the over the years. And it is my hope at some point uh, when things are um, uh, safer, if you will, that I would get the chance to go back again and renew some of these friendships. Dr. Joseph, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrea. Dr. Dilip Joseph is Program Director for Morningstar Development. It's provided support for people in Afghanistan since the U.S. invaded the country 20 years ago. It also offers programs to Afghan refugees living in countries like India. When we come back, personalizing pharmaceuticals using genetics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Imagine one day a person diagnosed with high blood pressure could know based on their genetics what medication would work best for them. That's the theory behind pharmacogenomics, and the hope is that it can remove some of the trial and error that goes into finding the right drugs for patients. Samit Shah just released an educational book he co-wrote on the subject. Shah is a professor and dean at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver and Professor Welcome. 
Thanks so much for having me. Can you give me an example of a scenario where you can use genetics to determine if a certain drug would benefit a patient? I, I could give my own example. So um, I'm a poor metabolizer for a drug called um, Plavix or Clopidogrel. So Clopidogrel is an antiplatelet agent, and we use that after heart disease or circulatory disorders to prevent another stroke or um, uh, major heart disease. And some Plavix is what we call a prodrug. And so when it's taken by us, it's inactive. And it needs to be converted into its active form uh, for it to have activity. Turns out 30% of the population does not make the protein or makes a slightly different version of a protein. And so they are not able to activate this drug. There are other drugs available that would be a better choice for these individuals. So we could be using a different drug uh, instead of clopidogrel in these cases. Uh, another example um, could be codeine, for example. So codeine, again, is a prodrug. It gets a lot of its analgesic effects, its adverse effects from being converted into morphine. Um, some individuals uh, carry a gene that makes a lot more morphine than others. So there are case reports where a two-year-old is given codeine after a tonsillectomy at a dose that it's typically given at, and the, the, it, and there's a tragic death uh, because of respiratory depression or a mother who is uh, nursing um, and has a newborn, um, the baby passes away, the newborn passes away. In both of these cases, they were making a lot more morphine than what a typical individual would have made. So in all of these cases, by using genetic testing, we can determine if a different drug would be better for them or if we should adjust the dose of the drug. So in the case of codeine, you would give them less. Um, and I understand there are some antidepressants where you can test a person to see how effective the drugs would be. I imagine this would be hugely beneficial to people as well. Yeah, so there are around 270 um, uh, drugs uh, where the label now has some sort of pharmacogenetic information. And for 50 or so of those, we have really strong evidence that we should be using this genetic information. So in the case of antidepressants, for example, um, a major class of drugs that's used is the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. Um, so these would be drugs such as Zoloft or Lexapro. Uh, again, what happens is after we take a drug, a protein is then able to metabolize these drugs and remove it from the body. And in certain individuals, either they could be making a version of the protein that is very active and so really removes the drug very quickly from the body where it's not building up to therapeutic levels where it would have an effect. And so another drug class might be better suited in these individuals, or they might have a version of the drug where, or a version of the protein where it is not metabolizing the drug. And so very high levels of the drug are building up in the system. And in these cases, we might uh, want to either reduce the dose of the drug or use uh, another drug class. Um, again, similar for some tricyclic uh, antidepressants such as amitriptyline, uh, where the same sort of thing occurs. So again, reducing some of the trial and error. And explain why this field, I believe some also call it precision medicine, is particularly relevant right now. So... 
what happened in 2000 was we had the first human genome sequenced. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars to sequence that first genome. But then the rate at which we have been able to sequence genomes uh, has just, uh, both the price has come down dramatically and our efficiency and the rate at which we can uh, do it has gone up. And so now instead of hundreds of millions of dollars, it costs less than $1,000 to sequence an entire genome. Uh, what this has done is two things. One, for commercial applications, it's now pretty inexpensive to be able to do this. Two, it has really accelerated the research in the field where we are continuing to find more and more of these relationships between genes and how they are affecting uh, certain drugs. And as we get both more of this information and uh, where it has become much more inexpensive to do this testing, we are now able to use this technology. So. Um, a lot of uh, payers, insurance, um, uh, Medicare, uh, they are starting to see the value of using this and the decreasing drug costs. Um, and, and so um, uh, they are starting to cover it. Uh, we are starting to see some private payers, uh, private insurance uh, companies cover for it. Um, and, and that's why we are seeing um, a, a big uh, increase in testing. How many hospitals and doctors, though, are consistently using this testing for choosing drugs for patients? Right now, it is being led by a number of major health systems across the country. So the University of Florida, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, um, Mayo Clinic, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So all of these are doing it on a very comprehensive basis. Uh, there are pockets of places other than that which, which are starting to implement this. Uh, but there's a lot of talk across health systems now. And um, I think we should start seeing more and more of this being implemented, both in health systems and also at pharmacies and, and uh, other health clinics around us. What about ethical issues around this? Doing genetic testing can reveal a lot about a person's health. How do you keep all that information private? Yeah, so the uh, a law was passed in 2008 called the Genetic uh, Information Non-Discrimination Act, and it prohibits employers from using genetic information against um, uh, uh, hiring or firing decisions, and also prohibits health insurance companies from uh, using this information to deny coverage. However, I think there are still some challenges remaining in the field. For example, it does not cover uh, life insurance or long-term care, and so we need to address some of these issues. Uh, there's also this issue of incidental findings. You know, would a patient uh, like to get some additional information we might discover as we do this testing? Or would they like to share information about uh, this genetic condition because it could be shared by other members of the family? And, and um, so just uh, issues of, of that nature. But it can also be scary uh, if you find out that you have a propensity to a certain type of cancer, for example. Do you see risks to people knowing too much about diseases that they might be predisposed to? Yes, and I think that's part of where it it may differ from individual to individual. Some individuals might like to have all of the information they could get, and others might not want this. And that's where uh, having a very robust um, informed consent process is really critical. When you think of the future of pharmacogenomics, what are some of the possibilities you imagine, say, 10 years out? Yeah, I... 
you know, I like to think of a quote uh, by Bill Gates where he said, um, we often tend to overestimate what would be accomplished in one year, and we tend to underestimate what can be accomplished in 10 years. And so uh, in 10 years, um, this hopefully is going to be very routine testing where um, where we'll have this sort of genetic information available and there'll be just one additional tool along with other things like kidney function or other drug-drug interactions that we can use when a new drug is being uh, given to an individual so that rather than going through three different antidepressants and finding one that works for a patient, uh, we can start with the one that's most likely to work for an individual. Dr. Shah, thanks so much. Thank you. Samit Shah is a dean and professor at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver. Shah co-wrote a new textbook about the field of pharmacogenomics. After the break, one man's journey from a troubled yet promising childhood and his path through the juvenile justice system and into adulthood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Item from a vintage Colorado newspaper, Dateline Cripple Creek. Last Monday night, a burglar entered a tent where a miner was asleep. The thief took the miner's limited amount of cash, $6.25, and was just departing when the sleeper awoke. He started after the burglar, chased him several blocks, but unable to catch him, returned to his tent. The miner was barefoot and his feet hurt. Sitting down, he took his penknife and picked out $6.80 worth of gold embedded on the soles of his feet. From the Creed Daily Candle, February 18, 1892. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble Urban and Mountain Communities. Today, one man's story of his path from childhood to the juvenile justice system. Brandon Wainwright grew up in Colorado Springs. As a young teenager, he was caught shoplifting and lost his college scholarship. Wainwright wrote a monologue about his experience as part of the Boulder-based Modus Theater's Just Us project. The project examines the criminal justice system through first-person stories. He read his story with Deborah Richardson, the new executive director of the Colorado ACLU. Their performance was at an event honoring Martin Luther King's birthday this month. At birth, my name was Brandon Marlowe Wainwright. That is the name my mother used, as well as the teachers in school. On the street, my name is Dub, D to the UB, or you can just call me Young Black King. But on a serious note, let me tell you that 90% of the people from my hood are considered failures, and I'm supposed to act like I can't be part of that 10% because of the way you think of me and the choices I've made to survive. I have a young mother, young father, brothers and sisters at home, barely food in the fridge or water, depending on if it was on. I'm surrounded by old heads and young'uns walking around with handguns, and they won't hesitate to let me know 
what they think of my honor roll as if I can't fight. School is kind of a sanctuary, if you will, or a safe haven. It's like, look, I can be myself. I can be a nerd. I can be a thespian. I can do sports. I can do whatever I want while I'm in school because I'm living my life. This is how I want to live. This is how I want to live. But outside of school, I put on a whole other mask. I fight, and I fight. Oh, and I fight. I am Dub. Me and my gang, we do what we do. Big time shoplifting, small time drug dealing. Like I said, in my hood, 90% of the people are considered failures, and they are the people whose approval I need in order to survive. And you might not like the guys I hang out with, but they are the ones who have my back, and you best believe I have theirs. Oh yeah, I do. And this is not the life I want to live, but it is the life I have to live. Things become harder when I turn 16. I stood up for my brother against my father, and for that, I'm out of the house. I'm no longer his mouth to feed. From 16 on, there isn't anyone giving me a roof, clothes, food, and I have to go and do that with the help of my gang, and that's why I said I had to live, find a way. And then I was losing my life because at a young age, trying to be an adult, you know, you can't really have a life. You got to kind of give that up. But still, I am a star student, honor roll, and state champion athlete, blah, blah, blah. Against all odds, I still kept my cards. I kept my cards. And by my senior year, it is clear I'm going to be part of the 10% that makes it. That makes it. Women, money, cars, I'm headed for the NFL. I have a full ride sports scholarship, and I'm choosing the offers. I'm even going to be prom king. So with all this headed my way, did anyone ask me on January 12th of my senior year why I shoplifted? Well, let's just say <laughs> I robbed six video stores in one night. Six in one night. Instead of working hard to prove what a terrible criminal I was, did anyone consider I might have also been a young man having a hard time and needing some help? Did anyone sit in a circle with me and say, Brandon Wainwright, what were you thinking? Six stores in one night? You must have known you would have got caught. For a few thousand dollars, you threw away a $100,000 full-ride college scholarship. You were going to be part of that 10%. Why, Brandon? No, they didn't ask. They charged me with robbery. They kicked me out of school. They made an example of me. Nobody acknowledged that I had to be the best at being Brandon Wainwright, star athlete and star student, to make the 10% and thrive, and that I had to be the best at being dubbed to have shelter, food, and survive. They didn't acknowledge that I was locked in a terrible split that put surviving and thriving at war with each other. They acted like Brandon, the high school vice president of Future Business Leaders of America, was a lie, and that I had finally shown my true colors, black, as if I was by nature essentially a criminal. Nobody in the justice system or the school system cared enough to even ask why I did what I did. Nobody. And, uh, well, it's a long story. It's a long story. But let me just say, at the moment I made that decision, I was exhausted by the fight, and I didn't even care. You want to know why I didn't care? 
because that night I was hurting and I didn't feel any love. You know why I didn't feel any love? Because I wasn't getting it from the parents who I thought had made me their son. They didn't come to my games. They didn't care that I was on the honor roll, <laughs> that I was going to college, or that I had a scholarship. They didn't even have to pay for it. And why wasn't I getting that love? Because I was living on my own at 16, away from the only home I'd ever known. And because my parents were young, and they hadn't grown up with much love. And they were busy fighting poverty, fighting racism, fighting their own ignorance, fighting to survive themselves, and tired of fighting with me, and struggling how to raise a young black son in a place where the streets have so much more power and a parent has so little. Or you can just knock it down to the fact that where I was raised, you're either born with it or you're born without it, no matter what you apply that to. And I thought I'd rather be caught with it than without it. I'd rather down my feet than live on my knees. I needed money to live, for food, shelter, clothes on my back, and maybe to graduate looking nice in that prom king suit I was going to pay with some of this cash. Yeah, it's a long story that you slam into one righteous move of your gavel, and you would have to actually care about me to understand. Instead of any help and support dealing with the challenges I faced, I got a lifelong label as a criminal and more obstacles to overcome. I was already tired, and the fight just got harder. But I'm not giving up. I have two beautiful daughters, London and Anina, a handsome son, his name is Nasir, which means helper and one who gives victory. So everything that I do from this point on is for my kids and for my family, so they will never go through what I went through because I'm always going to be here for them, whether physically or spiritually, I'm always going to be here. After reading, the ACLU's Deborah Richardson shared what struck her about Wainwright's story. You know, Brandon, it was, in hearing your story, I realized that the only thing that separates any of us is luck and the accident of birth. Yes. If you had been born in a different place and time, with different parents or different projectives of their lives, you would have not had those horrible experiences. But the victory here is who you are now, that you're an incredible father, you're very accomplished, you've gone to college, and that you use that not to stop your life, but to really propel it going forward. Wainwright also reflected on what it was like to listen to parts of his monologue read by Richardson. Just hearing, hearing you know, your voice and then hearing my words coming from your voice, it just gives me a whole another perspective. To me, it made me feel like you were telling me a story about someone that you knew, and I could relate to it. And that's how it, how it felt while you were reading it to me, and like you knew who you were talking to. So I definitely appreciate that. And Wainwright talked about his story and the justice system in light of the vision of Martin Luther King. My situation is not necessarily a unique case, if you will. Um, <laughs> it happens to a lot of us out there. With the correlation of Martin Luther King, or the doctor, <laughs> like the, I like to call him, it, it, it's getting us to, for people to pay attention more and to start speaking up more and saying things that, you know, hey, this isn't right. We can change things. Giving people the confidence to actually get outside of your comfort zone and be like, hey, well... <laughs> 
that's not right, <laughs> you know? And, and I feel like a lot in this day and age, it's happening a lot more. People are actually calling people out on injustices, if you will. And, you know, it's like, hey, I wouldn't want my kid to be treated like that. So I'm not going to let your kid be treated like that. And I feel like a, a or people, period. And, and that's kind of what, you know, Dr. King was trying to project as well and put out there. It's like, hey, we're all human. We're all the same. No matter how you were raised, you're still a human being. And if I wouldn't let that happen to me, I don't want that to happen to you. The event included performances by the Denver group Spirit of Grace. One thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Oh, freedom is its name. It's going to be our claim to fame. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. That spirit of grace singing their version of Eyes on the Prize at an event by Modus Theater's Just Us Project. The project examines the criminal justice system through first-person stories. At the event, Brandon Wainwright read his monologue, Trying to Live, I Lost My Life. He read the story along with Deborah Richardson. She's the new executive director of the Colorado ACLU. Their performance was a tribute to Martin Luther King's birthday this month. Dr. Martin Luther King, oh, we know he had a dream. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. He stood up and he fought, that's why today we sing. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. When we come back, celebrating the magic of Harvey and the woman who brought him to life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Read with Colorado Matters. For Turn the Page, we've chosen All That Is Secret by Patricia Raybon, a mystery set when the KKK loomed large. A young black theologian gets a telegram to come back to Colorado and find out why her father was killed. But she could be a victim herself. Read All That Is Secret and meet the author virtually February 8th. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. The play Harvey premiered on Broadway in 1944. Audiences fell in love with it. The play features a man named Elwood Dowd, whose best friend is a large rabbit. The catch is no one but Elwood can see the rabbit. Harvey became a feature film starring Jimmy Stewart. Here's Stewart's character talking about what happens when he and Harvey go to bars and meet new people. They sit with us, they drink with us, they talk to us. They tell about the big, terrible things they've done and the big, wonderful things they'll do. Their hopes and their regrets, their loves and their hates, all very large because nobody ever brings anything small into a bar. And then 
I introduced them to Harvey. And he's bigger and grander than anything they offer me. And, and when they leave, they leave impressed. Playwright Mary Chase won a Pulitzer Prize for Harvey. She was a lifelong Denverite and grew up in a working-class Irish family. Tonight, she's featured in the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame series, Great Colorado Women, airing on Rocky Mountain PBS. There's also a new biography about Chase, who died in 1981. It's called Pulling Harvey Out of Her Hat. I spoke with author Mimi Pockross in June. Mimi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mary Chase uh, had modest beginnings. She grew up in the Baker neighborhood in Denver. Was there any hint as a child that she was going to become a writer? She was a reader uh, at a very early age. She had uh, she read A Tale of Two Cities, which she was very proud of later in the in the jacket. It talked about how she read it at the age of eight. Um, she probably wasn't geared that way, although she, when she discovered the theater at the age of 11, she said later that she thought she was going to be a playwright. So there was probably something in the back of her mind. And at first, she, like her husband, was a reporter for the Rocky Mountain News. And among other things, she was a society reporter. What was it like to cover Denver society back in the 1920s? Well, there was one famous woman um, who had come from the South. Her name was Louise Sneed Hill, and she ran the city in terms. She came here, and she thought that the society uh, was not glamorous enough, and she spent her entire life uh, making sure that there were society balls and visiting opera singers and uh, all kinds of events and galas, and Mary was a reporter, and she covered those uh, those balls, um, royalty. Uh, she she saw it all. It was almost like they were trying to replicate high society in Denver, and they were a little insecure that it wasn't here yet, and uh, so they were working at trying to make it that way. Oh, totally. Um, Louise Sneed Hill often went. She traveled all over the world. She was spent a lot of time in New York, where. Uh, the Astors and the Vanderbilts lived, and the room of 400 was very well known. She created her own Sacred 76, uh, 36 in Denver, which is uh, uh, personified in unsinkable Molly Brown when uh, Molly Brown is not allowed in. She made it very exclusive. Uh, it, uh, clothes were very important. Um, she loved the whole aura of high society. Now, she eventually left the Rocky Mountain News and turned to writing full-time. She was also a housewife and mother. How did she balance those roles at a time when many women were expected to be at home with kids and do housework? Well, sometimes she ignored it all. <laughs> the housework. <laughs> she annoyed it. Sometimes she ignored her children, too. There's a story that goes that they buried all her silver in the backyard while she was writing Harvey. Uh-huh. Um but she was actually kind of organized. Uh, she had nannies. Uh, one woman uh, was from the juvenile delinquent home, and she hired her out. She always seemed to be able to organize it. Um, 
Her husband filled in sometimes, not with the laundry or the cooking, but he uh, oversaw the child care. She made sure that she uh, was able to take advantage of her opportunities no matter what. She went to New York five weeks after she had her third child, and she just gave her, asked her family to help her out. Uh, She was very ingenious. Before Harvey, Chase had another play on Broadway that was panned by reviewers. I think it was called Me Third. What did they say about it? It was first in Denver, and everybody loved it. Uh, It was produced during the Federal Theater Project of the 30s, uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. Uh, Then it went to Broadway, and the critics thought it was um, uh, trite and overworked and nothing new. Um, The audiences thought it was great. They laughed and thought it was wonderful, but it was a humiliating defeat, and uh, the the show closed quickly after it opened. So then came Harvey. Uh, The plot is very unique. Tell us a bit more about what it was about. Well, uh, she had a dream. Uh, She wanted to cheer up a neighbor across the street from her who had lost her son and in the war, and this was right in the height of the war. It was 1942. And so she dreamed about a psychiatrist chasing a six-foot-tall rabbit, and that turned into the play Harvey. Um, It's about escaping um, from reality, and it's about uh, who is the one who's crazy. Is it Harvey or is it the people around her? And so she really poked fun at all of them sort of in a light and fluffy way, not in a a way where she pointed the finger at anybody. But um, Elwood has this six-foot friend, uh, Harvey, and he goes everywhere with him. And Vita, his sister, wants to get rid of Harvey because it's it's getting in the way of her daughter's um, marital aspirations. And so she tries everything she can, and finally she decides to commit him. And then it becomes a question of who should be committed. Um, and it all works in the, in, in the end. Um, it's not a spoiler. Everybody knows the movie, or pretty much everybody knows the movie. Maybe not young people, but... Why was it so attractive to audiences? Well, I think that at the time, at least the critics say, that it was a way to escape all of the sadness that was going on in World War II. This was a really, really tough time for everybody. Either you had a son who was uh, serving in the war or you were deprived or you, because of, of the war. You had to watch your pennies. You, you, it was a time when everybody was looking for escape. But I also think that everybody enjoyed the players, the actors, Frank Fay and Josephine Hall, who were wonderful in their parts. And it was just a lovely, fun escape evening. I understand Jimmy Stewart said it was among his favorite roles to play. What did he say about uh, playing Elwood? He, oh, I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. It was always his favorite role. And um, I think think he felt that um, it was it was the human aspect of it, the human kindness, the message that we're all we all should be nice to each other. 
Um, and I think he played that role so many times. He substituted on Broadway. He played it in London. He played it on television. He loved it because of the, I think, the aspect of of the human human element. Now, as we said, Mary Chase won a Pulitzer Prize in drama uh, for Harvey. That was in 1945. And I understand she had some stiff competition. Who else was in the running? Well, it's hard to believe, but it was Tennessee Williams for The Glass Menagerie. And it remains a controversy today. People couldn't believe that um, a fluffy play like Harvey could beat out the 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 intensity of D- Tennessee Williams' play. Now, while many people know about the play and the movie Harvey, Mary Chase isn't exactly a household name in Colorado or even Denver. Why wasn't she better known? Well, she was at the time that this all happened. The newspapers covered it constantly. She was overwhelmed by the press. Um, her children, in fact... Um, that's it, where she had to sort of watch over them because they were um, um, one time I think somebody said, oh, your mother didn't write that play. And if she did, it was horrible. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of publicity at the time that she um, achieved what she achieved. But then through the years, even though she had other achievements along the way, people start to forget um, if they're not reminded regularly with a statue or with a, a series or with a revival of the play. Uh, and I think that you have to keep reminding people this is a wonderful, this is somebody we should be really proud of. <laughs> Just to wrap up, Chase and her husband struggled with money a lot early on, but their wealth grew as her plays sold. And the two moved into a wealthy neighborhood in Denver on Circle Drive. The house is still there. What was her life like after she started having the success she did? Well, the the house is called the house that Harvey built, even though she was the second owner. Um, and it became her, uh, her center. Uh, they traveled for a while, and uh, but most of the time uh, they entertained all kinds of people from all walks of life. Uh, she continued to write uh, she had a rich life. Mimi, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Mimi Pockross is the author of Pulling Harvey Out of Her Hat. It's about Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Mary Chase, who lived in Denver. Pockross and I spoke in June. Chase is featured tonight at 7.30 in Great Colorado Women, presented by Rocky Mountain PBS and the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame. That's our show today. Thanks much for joining us, and thanks to the team who makes it all possible. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.